In the past, there have been very clear signals to tell us when a recession is going to happen or is very likely to happen. Of course, one of those that we've discussed ad nauseum, we've beaten it pretty much to death on this channel already, is the inversion of the yield curve. Well, the person most famous for discovering the relationship between the yield curve inversion and incoming recessions is famed uh, economist Cam Harvey, who is with us today, not for the first time. Very excited to have him, but mostly excited because his model using yield curve inversion to predict recession has been right eight out of eight times, the last eight times it happened. But he believes that this time is different. We're going to hear why. Of course, we've also got Dave Weisberger with us today. It's Macro Monday. Let's go. Let's go. What is up, everybody? I am Scott Melker, also known as the Wolf of All Streets. Before we get started, please subscribe to the channel and go ahead and tap the like button right down below. I'm very excited about today's stream. Sad that Mike McGlone is going to miss it because I know that he would have uh, loved to have a chat here with Cam because Mike is certainly, as you know, in the other camp, which is that uh, incoming recession, if not incoming, great reset. But that's something that we can discuss today. Now, before I dig in with the guests, there is something I want to tell you guys about because you've probably uh, read the newsletter today, this morning, my free newsletter. Well, I've hinted at it quite a few times, and I'm really excited because finally launching that second newsletter alongside the tie. I've, I've showed you guys their dashboard. They're effectively the Bloomberg of crypto, um, but it's way too complex for me. I've told you guys that. I use about 5%, 10% of the data that they have there on that well, what we decided to do, as I've told you guys about 100 times, is to kind of, uh, I won't say dumb it down, but that's for me, is to make a, a version for all of you of the most important indicators every day. It's completely AI-driven, completely data-driven, no opinion, no anything from the likes of me. You can kind of see what it looks like here. All the trending news based on the most tweeted news in the crypto space talks about futures in all markets, what's happening with the top coins, daily outliers for searching for potential uh trades and ideas basically guys there's a lot i don't want to waste our guest time but you should check out the dailyclose.io it's right down in the description for that because it's something i've been working on forever and finally it is going live today but now i'm going to bring on today's guests i've got cam harvey and dave weisberger gentlemen welcome thank you for uh sharing your monday morning with me now cam cam i have to ask you first right the the most dangerous four words in the uh in investing, this time it's different, according to Sir John Templeton, right? But you are actually going out on a limb and saying this time it's different from your own model. Can you explain uh, that? Look, um, this expression, this time is different, doesn't really impress me. Every time is different. That's just a fact. So uh, when you've got a model, the model tries to simplify reality in a way. And... The yield curve model that I discovered in my dissertation in 1986, it's been very reliable. As you said, eight out of eight is a great track record, but um, it's not just that. Uh, it's had no false signals. So you could be eight out of eight with uh, like 20 false signals. It's got zero false signals since 1968. So the model has done really well, but it's a model and it's 
if you think about it, very simple. It looks like one variable, the difference between a long-term yield and a short-term yield. And that's it. The economy is very complex and it's naive to think that a model as simple as this will just continue to produce uh, like 100% accurate forecasts with no false signals, uh, just like going into the future. So, so I don't think that it's a big surprise that, uh, and it could be um, the founder of the model like me, um, going on record and saying, no, not this time. So I'm not trying to talk my, my trade, right? Yeah, it's my model, but I'm scientific about it. And when I look at other information, I suggest this is most likely a false signal. So then I guess the question becomes, what are the other variables this time that are clearly different that would lead you to believe that the it's a false signal in this case? Is it the job data that's been relatively strong uh, or is it something else that uh, maybe we haven't thought about here yet? Yeah, so there's a number of pieces of information that kind of led me to believe that this is likely a false signal uh, this time. And, and let's actually start with jobs because it's misunderstood. So people say, well, it's unlikely we're about to go into recession because un unemployment is low. Well, unemployment's low before every recession. Right? It's low and it gets higher in a recession. So, so that argument doesn't make any sense. And we know that employment is a lagging uh, indicator of the economy. So just looking at the unemployment number, that's not good enough. However, looking inside uh, the unemployment number uh, is important. And one thing that's sharply different this time is the number of job openings compared to those that are unemployed. So it's like 1.8 job openings for every person that's unemployed right now. So, so that's different and it's striking. And if you think about the actual mechanism here, that we can have an economic slowdown, which I actually believe uh, is happening already and will continue. So slower economic growth is consistent with a flat or inverted uh, yield curve, but the unemployment or the layoffs that result from that slower economic growth there is capacity in the economy to absorb those that are unemployed or a large proportion of them. And we know that in terms of the definition of a recession, that uh, the labor sector is very important for that definition. So, so that's number one that I expect, yes, there will, will be a slowdown. Yes, there will be uh, layoffs and those layoffs uh, have fairly short duration in terms of unemployment, just given the, the buffer that's available uh, today. So th that's kind of number one on the employment side. There's a second interesting aspect to the, the type of employment growth that we've been experiencing. And the headlines are filled with, uh, you know, these tech firms uh, laying off you know, 5%, of their workforce and, and things like that. Um, well, that type of unemployment is different than, for example, uh, during the global financial crisis before we knew 
that we were going into recession, uh, there were very substantial layoffs in, in the finance sector. And, and if you think about it, you get laid off at Lehman Brothers, where do you go? Are you going to go to Bear Stearns? Are you going to go uh, to one of the big banks that has their handout uh, for the government? No, it, you were facing a very long period of unemployment and, and many were unemployed for years. Now consider the, the tech workers. So you're, you've got this incredible job at, at Twitter or Google or Facebook or wherever. And, and, and within the tech sector, to get a job at one of these firms is like the ultimate placement. And you get laid off. Well, there's many companies in the U.S. that would be glad to have like an ex-Google person. Like just to, to have that pedigree to, to, to actually get through and get that placement. Wow. Um, and this means that their, again, their duration of unemployment is a lot shorter. And as somebody pointed out to me the other day that what I was saying was was false that uh, many of these people are not immediately placed. And I said to them, well, uh, you're looking at the data, but again, behind the data is a different story. That these people, and, and I'm making a general statement, not uh, for every single one, but in general, um, there's no rush for them to get the new job. They're going to take some time off. Because the expected time to get the new job, once they start looking really hard, is very short. So, so why not uh, take um, a month off and, um, and regroup? So again, these people are highly employable. And uh, again, this is just much different than... Uh, the global uh, financial crisis recession. And what we really fear here is the hard landing. Okay, so uh, the number, th there's many reasons, um, but let me briefly talk about number three reason. And and that is um, the, the housing sector, which was very, very costly in terms of the last uh, recession and consumers were super overexposed. And if you look at the ratio of equity and housing to debt today versus before the global financial crisis, it is a shockingly uh, different situation where there's so much more equity uh, in housing. And this again provides a buffer where housing prices can go down. It's not gonna cause like a massive problem like it did in 2007 and 2008. So that's, uh, that's kind of like number uh, three. Um, and let me jump to uh, number four, which, which is a big one. And it has to do with my model. So uh, when the yield curve inverted in 2006, people really didn't notice, or most people didn't notice. And then when the global financial crisis hit, um, and many companies were in distress. A CEO or CFO at the, at the annual general meeting or conference call could legitimately say, well, we were blindsided. 
Uh, we had no idea this was coming. And oh, by the way, it's not just my company in trouble. All of my competitors uh, within the industry are in trouble, and we're all blindsided by you know the actions of the big banks causing uh, this horrible um, economic situation. So after the global financial crisis, people began to notice this yield curve indicator. Oh, well, uh, it's delivered uh, seven out of seven uh, accurate forecasts of, uh, of recessions with no false signals. And then it got uh, like a remarkable amount of attention after the global uh, financial crisis, not before, but after. So now uh, it's in the news. So we talk about the model on your show. So it, it's and has been in the news uh, for the last seven months. So so what do you do? You're, you're a corporation and uh, you're thinking of making a major capital investment and you need to borrow to do that. And, um, and the yield curve is inverted. So, so let's kind of run through the scenarios. So let's say that you pull the trigger on this major investment. You take a lot of debt. The economy goes into recession and your company is in distress, potentially on the verge of bankruptcy. And then you go and talk to the angry shareholders and, and say, look, um, I had no idea this was coming. I was blindsided. And the shareholders start to laugh because, oh, like how could you have ignored the yield curve indicator? Everyone's seen the model, so yeah, how dare yeah. you say yeah, you exactly. So this is, uh, what I'm really talking about here is uh, a causality that didn't exist uh, before. So once people have seen the track record of the model, it changes their behavior. It, in a way, it becomes self-fulfilling. And, and let, me, let me parse this because it's really important. So you might think, oh, well, self-fulfilling prophecy, that means we go into recession for sure. So, so let's kind of go through the economic mechanism here. So, so now let's go back to my scenario where we've got the bet the firm investment and the CEO says, what? You know, we, we, we need to delay. We can't pull the trigger on this in the face of like an inverted yield curve. And 70% uh, of economists think we're going into recession. You got to be kidding. Let's delay. Let's wait. And it might be an investment. It might be new hiring. It, it's dot, dot, dot. Um, let's delay. And, and that does lead to a self-fulfilling aspect. So when you've got lower employment growth, when you've got less capital investment, uh, that does lead to slower growth. Okay, so that's the self-fulfilling aspect of it. But there's another aspect that is, uh, is more important, and that is these companies are engaging in risk management. So uh, we see these layoffs of 5% of the workforce. Well, um, and, and it's actually interesting that if you look at the tech hiring over, um, over the past uh, two years or two and a half years, it's been dramatic. And even losing 
uh, 5%. It's up very substantially since uh, the, the COVID uh, recession. So when you lay off 5%, to me, that's risk management. So that's, let's, we've hired a lot of people over the last uh, couple of years. Not every hire was ideal. And maybe we um, also hired into areas that didn't actually work out. So we got good people, but um, the, the focus, the area that we're betting on didn't quite work out uh, to expectation. So, so let's do uh, a layoff and 5% uh, is what I call a risk management a layoff. And what it does is it puts the company in a position whereby if the deep recession did occur, the company's in a much stronger position and doesn't need to do like a slash. And nobody wants a slash. Uh, when you slash, it's a very large proportion of your workforce. And, uh, and that's very, very painful for everyone. So what they're doing is putting themselves into a stronger position. Yes, it does lead to slower growth, but that stronger position means that when the macro economy does slow, these companies don't need to take drastic actions that makes things worse. So it's very subtle. And yeah, it's true that once um, a leading indicator is uh, has become very popular. Uh, you see behavior like this where people start reacting to it early and the indicator might become less reliable. In my particular case, I believe my indicator, my dissertation focused on the slope of the yield curve and future economic growth. And I believe that the yield curve is correctly signaling lower economic, lower economic growth um, we might actually go into a recession, but it'll be a technical recession like 2001, where we didn't even have like negative year over year growth. So it's, in my opinion, uh, not going to be deep. And I'm willing as kind of the, uh, the inventor of the model, I guess I've got some credibility, uh, when I say that it's likely a false signal. Dave, you get to unpack that. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's fascinating. It, it, I, I think the point on uh, the nature of job cuts and the nature of different jobs is a big deal. My friends would call would talk about structural versus, you know, cyclical versus, you know, secular or structural versus non. Uh, it's certainly true that if you were a realtor uh, or you were a broker that got laid off in the global financial crisis, you really had to wait for a new bull market to establish itself, which was people didn't believe it. I mean, people forget what it was like in 2009. Sure, the market had a great year, but people like I'll never forget. I think I don't know if you ever had Tom Lee on, you know, how many people kept saying, yeah, you're an idiot, you're an idiot. And he was an idiot, you know, the entire way up. Uh, but the, the fact is, is those are much longer. Uh, there, there's two points that are actually interesting. I was listening to Cam. Uh, the first is that it, it, it is one of the things that's different today. And, and I don't like the word different in the sense of a binary. It's a continuum, right? So we're not talking about, you know, yes, today the world of, of yield curve is far more 
uh, speculative than it was 10 years ago. And 10 years ago is more speculative than it was 10 years before that. That is true. So it's not like a binary thing. But the simple fact is, if you're a company and you want to borrow, you want to borrow long. And so at the end of the day, because that's where your obligations are. And if you are a lender, uh, you want to lend short. Uh, because then you know you can get your money back and whatever. So a inverted yield curve actually fits the real economy, uh, what companies want to do far better, right? It's particularly when you look at the rate of inflation, et cetera. The reason the yield curve inverts is because people speculate that they're going to have to cut rates. Uh, there was a really great thread by Raul Powell this morning, uh, which I'm also unpacking, where he's talking about <clears throat> a very, very top level thing population growth plus productivity has to equal uh you know how does he it's, it's okay let's get it right gdp growth equal population growth plus productivity growth plus debt growth and he goes through this entire explanation of what's going on so what i've said many times and cam i don't know if you ever heard this before but at the beginning of all the rate rises good thing about the internet it's all there so you can see it is i talked about the fact that what the fed really wants to engineer is higher short rates to pop inflationary expectations but keeping the long rate down that's what they want that is their clear goal why the government borrows long although they didn't haven't done so much you know toward the end of of things but the fact is, is governments can't afford deficits. And, de and if you look at the amount of interest rate debt service, even now, what would it look like if we ended up with like the 70 style double digits? I mean, they can't afford the long end to not be what it is. So they want a negative yield curve, which is the other big input into your model and why I think that what you're saying what you are, because it's 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 clearly intentional. Uh, it's it's what they want to to engineer. And whether or not they're capable of it, well, obviously they've been so far. So, that's yeah, so Dave, one. can I uh, just on your number one reason, um, and it, it's it's really interesting, and it has to do with my number five, which I I didn't actually get to. Okay, um, go ahead. And I'm glad <laughs> I'm glad I didn't actually because you just set it up perfectly. Right. Uh, and and it has to do with the financial sector, and we all know that the financial sector does not like inverted yield curves. Just think of a simple uh, banking uh, example where uh, people deposit money into their uh, savings account and you get paid a short-term uh, you know, savings rate. Uh, and, uh, and, and that is, is in the usual situation, a lot lower than the long-term rate. And that's what the bank actually lends out uh, to companies. So, so you want the maximum gap between the long-term and the short-term, and that's very correlated with uh, the profitability of banks. So uh, one thing, again, that's different this time is the health of the financial sector. So if we think of the global financial crisis, the, uh, the big banks were acting like hedge funds that highly levered uh, positions. Uh, and then when uh, there was a small uh, perturbation in the economy, uh, it was devastating uh, given their leverage. That is a completely different story today. And it is a, a fact um, that it's the banking health is much stronger uh, today and the probability 
that the financial sector makes things worse in a slower growth situation is really low. So if right. you were like highly levered uh, and, uh, and, and you got this inverted yield curve in, in, in 2006, that, that was like a lot of trouble um, for, for the banks. Today, uh, I do think it's different. On your point uh, about what the Fed is doing, the Fed is, in my opinion, uh, it's got like one blunt instrument, the Fed funds rate. And yeah, it's true. They're trying to push that up. And the danger, of course, is that uh, if those, if the whole term structure, the whole yield curve increases, that's devastating for um, the payment of the debt. And that's something that's far different than, let's say, in the early 1980s, where Volcker could uh, jack up the, um, the, you know, the Fed funds rate to near 20%. And, and other interest rates going, going up dramatically, the size of the debt to GDP was much smaller. Today, it's large. And, and surely the Fed understands that. And surely the Fed doesn't want a situation where they increase uh, the rates sufficiently that the government needs to print the money to pay off the debt. Because that uh, we've seen many times in other countries, and that could lead to the so-called death spiral. So nobody, nobody wants that. And the Fed is playing a very dangerous game right now. Indeed, the major um, factor that could put us uh, into a deep recession is what the Fed is doing right Over now. Yeah. They, they were late to the game. They were asleep at the wheel. And now I actually think that we've run the risk of overshooting. I think there's- Haven't the we already over? I mean, Dave, couldn't you say we already overshot? I mean, not even a matter of overshooting at this point, that even if they stop now, we could potentially have overshot? I mean, it's certainly possible. I mean, look, there, there's a couple of a couple of points in here. I mean, that 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 have to be said. The first, uh, let's go backwards. The the first thing we talked about, you know, you talked about, you know, banks borrow short, lend long. Great. Uh, keep in mind, and this is I just looked it up. As of bank rates March first weekly survey, the average yield on savings account is 023 percent. Now. Uh, I don't like using words like collusion or, well, I do like words like oligopoly when it comes to the banks, but, and, you know, get, we're in crypto. So, you know, we kind of understand that we're fighting a guerrilla warfare against a situation. And keep in mind, you know, look, I spent 14 years of my career from Solomon Brothers and ended up working at Citigroup and before that at, at Morgan Stanley. So believe me, you know, I spent a lot of my time in these institutions and you know, there's a lot of good people doing a lot of good things. And there's also a lot of people who really enjoy power. And the fact that we could have a national savings, savings accounts are still 0.23% tells me banks are just dandy. Uh, you know, and, and, and it's kind of funny because, you know, like we run our corporate treasuries, you have a choice. You could leave your money in a savings account in a bank and get 0.23% or you could buy three month T-bills and get four and a half percent. It really, that gap, I've never seen anything like that. That is different from this time from any other time. It's never been like this. The prime rate and you know where you could get, that is a big difference. Now, why I'm not going to go into because I don't have any direct knowledge of it, but the fact that it's true 
uh, changes things. So that that's thing number one. So yes, you're right. It would normally be bad for the financial sector, but not only is the financial sector less leveraged and therefore better able to handle it, uh, they're also not experiencing it. They they aren't paying that, and so the extent that people are dumb enough to leave their money there, I mean, so be it. It is what it is. So that's thing number one. The other thing that that's going on is. You know, we had, and I'm very curious what you think about that. My working theory has always been, and yes, I'm going to admit that despite going to Northwestern, I believe I, I was an adherent of Milton Friedman uh, of the Chicago School. I've always believed that inflation is a monetary phenomena, but I think that what happened is a bifurcation over the last 40 years in, is that inflation uh we always think of because we've been trained to do so as consumer prices yet the reality is asset prices going up is just as much inflation as consumer prices we just consider it good and the way i look at it is it effectively by having rates real rates below the rate of inflation i.e real rates being negative and we've had negative real rates we still have them now uh it, it basically what it does is it prioritizes capital over labor and it allows companies to afford to invest in technology that they might not otherwise have been able to do so if the investment wasn't free, which, of course, decreases uh, is a disinflationary impact. It also allows the upfront funding for the, the, the cost of switching toward more globalized workforces, which in the United States, at least, is an importation of disinflation. And so we've had those. The genie, in my opinion, got let out of the bottle the day that the Trump administration, and it was bipartisan, decided to start putting stimulus checks in people's hands. And that is a very big difference. That was the very first time through, an entire, through a massive monetary expansionary period that the government said, hey, okay, instead of giving it to the top down and having it trickle down, et cetera, et cetera, and we can talk about that however you wish, uh, we're going to give it to individuals. And that massive amount of demand, at the same time, supply chains were constrained at, and therefore there was less goods to produce. At the same time that they were giving you know, much more generous unemployment benefits, et cetera, et cetera, which, of course, in turn made the supply chain worse because there weren't people willing to work, was basically the moral equivalent of pouring gasoline uh, and lots of it. Uh, maybe even jet fuel, and then lighting the match by sent, by 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 doing it. And and to my, to me, when it happened, I thought inflation was inevitable because that's what I've been thinking all along. Uh, and now, two years later, we're trying to stuff the genie back in the bottle. And it, it's it's an interesting scenario because if if I'm right, then it means that they don't need to push very hard. Uh, to slow the economy down and cause a hard landing in order to get inflation to reduce as long as they can reestablish, uh, you know, capital investment and offshoring and all of those things, which are the disinflationary effect, which, by the way, is easier said than done. But it's something that I've talked, you know, I've seen Joe Wiesenthal, you know, the stalwart on Bloomberg talk about a lot. You know, he talks about the idea that if the Fed that actually easy money in some respects is disinflationary and what he's basically unpacking that into those two effects that I was talking about. So I'm going to stop there. I'm really yeah. sure what you think so, about. Um, so I largely agree with you. Um, so the number one point uh, about that savings rate—it's disgusting. I've got like a like a even like more incredible story where I got notice from my big bank, an unnamed bank, that they were going to auto renew um, a CD that was set up by my grandmother for. Um, my daughter <laughs> and the auto renew 
Um, uh, it was like a five-year CD, and it auto-renewed at, get this, 0.03%. So three basis points on a five-year CD. And, you know, I phoned the bank and it said, you know, what's going on? That That is totally inconsistent with market rates. Uh, and they said, well, you can cancel, but there's going to be a fee for the cancellation. And and all of this is just market power. <laughs> so we've got a highly concentrated, um, you know, commercial banking sector. Yes, there's 7,000 banks, but it's really a small number of banks that they can do this. It, it makes they, one wonder. It may, I just I have to interrupt and say something that that just to pick on my favorite pinata in the Senate. It makes one wonder. You know, anytime anyone ever says Elizabeth Warren and her entire cadre are the ones who are trying to keep the banks honest, and yet they she spends her time you know railing about things that could actually decrease the banks, and that no one on the progressive wing of the party has said boo about this. To me, is is. Almost mind blowing. Well, it would be mind if I thought she really actually cared about taking on the banks, yeah. but it is mind blowing. But it's not. So we talk about the centralization um, and the market power of banks. And you know, I've got this book on decentralized finance and the possibility of injecting real competition. Uh, and yes, I agree that Elizabeth Warren's been very negative on that. And it's inexplicable uh, to me because this is a technology, a financial democracy, and inclusion. Uh, yet she's focused on uh, the, the negative uh, aspects. But this is not just a financial situation. We've got market power all over the place. There's duopolies, triopolies, and, and they are strangling the economy. The reason that we have such lethargic growth, even in what we consider good times, is because of all this monopoly power that consumers are getting a, like a poor deal and when they have to pay too much, there's not enough money for other things. The banks are not funding investments that they should uh, fund. And all of this feeds together to cause a slower economic growth. And this is not cyclical. So this is, this is slower economic growth as a result of the financial frictions that are induced uh, in our economy. Whoops. I just want to make one comment there. I, once again, I always hate when people start talking about regulation, they say, well, this may have unforeseen or unintended consequences. There's a big difference. Unintended, perhaps. Unforeseen, no. The fact is the regulatory structure in the administrative state as it exists today, and this is probably if I had time to write a book, it might be about this. There's just so many examples. Virtually every single agency that writes rules, and I'm most familiar with the SEC, uh, having spent lots of time, you know, uh, running broker dealers and working with them, the amount of regulatory capture across every agency is so high that what does that do? What it does is it creates natural barriers to entry for smaller companies and natural advantages to larger companies. Companies that can afford to spend ten million dollars lobbying and or working with regulators to write rules don't mind the big Byzantine rules. They claim they, they, they have the vapors about it in public, but privately they're happy because that trade-off of spending that means they don't have to worry about themselves getting disrupted by newer, smaller, more nimble you know, companies. So what you describe, that monopoly power, I would argue is a direct, not 
uh, unforeseen, but actually direct and easy to foresee consequence of the rise of the administrative state. Because frankly, the more you regulate a market, if you look at what's going on in, in crypto and DeFi, for example, at the one time, there's tons of building going on. I mean, you know, my firm, you know, we, you know, we're, we're focused on providing, in fact, I think we are the only one that does it, uh, providing in a single order, a single trading algorithm app to be able to trade on DeFi exchanges, as well as centralized exchanges, as well as market makers. But, you know, this isn't easy, this stuff. I mean, you know, you're doing lots of plumbing to make all this stuff happen. And we've talked to hundreds of firms that are trying to do this. At the same time, the regulators, you know, are pushing I mean, if you look at what Gensler said about uh, crypto the other day, basically, it, he, he finally, it, what's the old expression? They're not even pretending anymore, Scott. It's very clear that he thinks that 100% of the, the industry, whether it's Bitcoin or Ether or any other coin for that matter, is, the way it's traded, should be traded by big banks and brokers to the exact same market structure that we know and love. And that's just a tiny little example. But that's happening in literally every, every sector of the economy. And so, yeah, monopoly power, of course, goes up. It's, it's oligopoly power, but it's augmented by the government instead of where the, you would think the government's idea is to break that up and to actually create competition. But yeah, that power so, is eventually disrupted by one of those smaller players that you discussed. Inevitably, right? I mean, if you look at the top largest companies in the world in 2005, they're very different than the largest companies in the world in 2023. And I think all of us here, although we may not look like uh, the classic proponents of DeFi, <laughs> I know that like Cam mentioned, he's written a book on it. Dave, we've talked about it extensively. Even You even see Coinbase launching a DeFi protocol to disrupt their own business, knowing that that's likely what's coming. So I want to, I, Cam, maybe you had a comment there. I don't want to uh, interrupt you. But after that, I do want to dig into the importance of DeFi then and how it can disrupt and potentially solve a lot of these problems that we're discussing here. Yeah, so this is uh, so difficult. And I think that, uh, I do think that having some sort of regulatory framework is useful. Uh, the problem is that we don't have it. So with respect to decentralized finance, we have to rely upon, uh, you know, the 1933 uh, Securities Act and a decision by the Supreme Court uh, on orange groves in 1946. And this is obviously a time where there's no computers and, and to have the regulations based upon these archaic um, rulings and, and acts just doesn't make any sense. And we're in this awkward position where we're regulating uh, by enforcement. And that's what the SEC uh, is doing. And the sort of uh, analogy I like is that you're driving, there are no rules. And then uh, you get pulled over by the police and, and, deter and they tell you you're going too fast. And that's the way you find out what the speed limit actually is. Are you going too slow? Or you make uh, a left turn on, on a red, you have no idea uh, that that is against the rules until somebody pulls you over. That's just really inefficient. And that's what's happening right now. It's regulation by enforcement. And what we don't have is a regulatory framework. 
And crypto has been around for quite a while. And, and people are saying we need a regulatory framework that is efficient. Okay, so, uh, and let me give it another car analogy. So suppose we've got uh, a large highway, four lane highway, and there are no lanes. There's no lane markers. So no painted lanes. And then we've got all these exits and there's no signs whatsoever. Right? So it's just all blank on this highway. Uh, it turns out that you can't go very fast on that highway uh, because it, it's basically chaotic. But when you put some lanes up and put a few signs up, uh, then it actually increases the efficiency. And right now we're in the situation where we have no painted lanes, we have no signs, we've got uh, a lot of police cars. Uh, and again, the uh, this is not the way to do efficient uh, regulation. And the result, of course, is that the best ideas in the US are going offshore. So you might say, well, if there's really harsh regulations, that's going to drive innovation offshore. Well, it, it turns out that people anticipate. And given the uncertainty uh, today, and given the lack of a regulatory framework, it makes sense to set up in the Cayman Islands or, or whatever country that is friendly uh, to crypto. And it, it's too bad because there's so much here. People, I think, generally underestimate uh, what is in store in the future. And people generally don't really understand what Web3 is. And in my opinion, Web3 is the major innovation that's coming. It's not just focused on uh, cryptocurrencies, but all companies. Um, so Web3 is Web2, which we've got today with a decentralized um, uh, infrastructure, uh, decentralized finance in infrastructure. And, and that means that you can do payments, um, you can receive or send in a very efficient manner without the banking system. And there's companies in the space that are focused on the, the, the key industries that, that we have today that have uh, monopoly or duopoly power. And you think of search, you think of decentralized social media, think of decentralized music streaming, video streaming, video calling, uh, decentralized computing, decentralized storage, decentralized ride sharing, decentralized mobile communications, decentralized Wi-Fi. All of this is coming and will attack uh, the, uh, the major players. And all of this is good for consumers. Uh, it puts money in their pocket. It makes the monopolies less powerful and it increases the quality of service. And the US does not want to be the country that pushes Web3 offshore. Strange because it feels like the US does want to be the country that pushes it offshore. Sadly, I know that that's not uh, across the board, but our policies certainly are. And so that begs the question, Dave, I'll just ask you this, but what you described, Cam, if you can sort of predict what's coming, whether you think we are going to get hard regulation, easy regulation, it doesn't matter. 
the fact that we have no reason to believe we're going to get any regulation, doesn't that mean it's already too late? I think, <clears throat> first of all, no, because I think we're still in relatively early days uh, in terms of you know a lot of the applications that are going to that are going to be part. I, I don't like Web three as it because so many people stuff so much into it. But let's just talk about a, a couple of of key things that Cam was referring to. So, you know, one, you know, uh, ownership or the ability to have ownership of networks and products so that you are, you know, so that you can own it and control it and it's not under centralized control through a, a range of information products is incredibly obvious to people, but obviously it's not, it's not that easy to do because once you have a critical mass on, on Twitter, for example, you know, moving that to something else is not, not easy. But just as easily in the industry, we talk about the financial industry, you talk about oligopolies. You know, one of uh, my favorite example is securities lending because the technology in securities lending really hasn't improved a whole lot in 50 years. You know, it's still a bunch of guys with very thick New York accents of, a, 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 you know, sitting around controlling the securities lending markets from the eight or so biggest banks. And the way that, the, that, that it works is, is every one of these companies that have retail accounts or other accounts where the securities are held and they loan those out to hedge funds or borrowers, uh, about 90% of the economics go to the middleman. You know, you get about 10% to the lender. The borrower pays too much and the economics go to the prime brokers. Now, there is no competitive industry in the world where the middleman makes anything more than probably 20, 25% later, except for maybe real estate. But the fact is, is it's, it's been held that way for a long time. I have a good friend who started a company called, actually I know a few of the people involved with it, called QuadraServe back in 2000 to automate the securities lending market. And they ran into a brick wall. Now, with, with DeFi, on the other hand, it won't run into a brick wall if people who own stocks are allowed to take ownership of stocks. So imagine a world where uh, all assets trade digitally like they do in crypto today, where rules that don't allow it, which is one of the reasons that and my personal pet peeve, Cam, you don't know this, but my personal pet peeve is why people should give a flying fuck about whether it's called a security or not is solely because we have securities rules that are written to effectively create this oligopolistic business and people just assume various pieces of it. Now, I, look, I am a market structure geek from way back and I know all of my ex-friends, well, they're still friends, but all my ex-colleagues at all the firms are up in arms about the 1500 pages or so of rules that the SEC has just dropped as proposals, many of which basically that you could describe the entire thing as how would an academic want to rebuild the financial system, uh, assuming that they can only move the needle so much and make sure when we write these rules, we ignore everything that practitioners have to do with. And you're going to see the comment letters on this stuff is going to be incredible. Yeah, but, uh, so just to be clear, uh, you use the word academic, but certainly not an academic from uh, the University of Chicago. No, definitely not. Uh, I, I already I already said my my homage to you know your your predecessors, so we all know where I come from. But what I'm getting at is these rules. If you think about it, what do we want rules for the transacting of transacting and investing in financial assets, securities or or whatever we call them? What do we want? We want four things, and most people would agree with this. And frankly, even Gensler doesn't disagree with it because he talks about it. The first thing you want is to be able to protect customer assets. It sounds obvious, but it isn't. 
because we have this whole in-street name process where if you buy IBM, you don't own IBM. In fact, your broker doesn't own IBM. It's in DTC in street name, and your name is on a ledger associated with that, and you're given protections. Uh, it's a very arcane, expensive way of, of protecting your assets, but at least if your broker goes bankrupt, you don't have to worry about it. You're going to still own what you own. Second, we want fair and orderly markets. We want to be able to surveil against manipulation. I did a, a video last this past weekend, which uh, I know, Scott, you liked it on you know, last Thursday's uh, drop in Bitcoin, I called it a masterclass of manipulation and explained exactly how the manipulators probably committed the crime. But we have no regulatory structure to be able to deal with that. We could if regulators cared about principles. Third, we care about protecting all aspects of fiduciariness. I personally like the best execution standard, but there's lots of them. You know, know your customer, don't, you know, et cetera. There's lots of fiduciariness stuff that we think is reasonable and then there's other stuff that's completely ridiculous, but that's besides the point. And last, and definitely not least, probably most important, we want a disclosure regime. We want people to disclose what risks people are really taking. For example, not to rub salt in, in a wound that Scott gets mad about, but if Voyager had told their investors that instead of acting as an agent to lend out their Bitcoin to people who want to borrow Bitcoin in, in a market, that they were writing a blank check to a hedge fund in Singapore, uh, people would have pulled their money. And they knew that and were finding that out. But the fact is, is understanding disclosure of risk is very important. The other thing is you want to know disclosures about financial investments. If you're a company, you have financial statements and things in Edgar that you need to do. Now, they are hopelessly outdated, but it's still useful. If you're a foundation or if you're doing a tokenomics, there is not a rule the SEC has in a playbook to understand the economics of those assets, of foundation, open source type assets and things. So yeah. we need to modify. None of those four things that I just said can be done with the current rule set. None of them. Yeah. So I've got, so many of the things you said, I, I agree with. Um, but, but to me, I think of it differently in terms of the overarching objective. So, so I think that this needs to guide uh, where we're going. So all of the four things are, are reasonable. Uh, it is complicated by the fact that this is a global economy. And when you look at uh, the crypto world, especially, uh, it's global. So what Voyager is doing, uh, yes, it's true. The FTC uh, could have come in earlier and they kind of waited until the bankruptcy to say, oh, well, that's misleading. Uh, they could have come in earlier, but it was offshore, largely. Finance was, um, you know, is offshore uh, right now. Um, FTC was offshore. So, again, this is a, a global issue, making it much more complicated. But the overarching goal is to have an economy that is growing where if you've got a good idea and it doesn't matter uh, who you are, uh, how much money you've got, but if you've got a good idea, that that idea has a fair chance of being financed. And with that, we can take the US economy and put it on a different growth footing. Everybody wants growth. The government especially wants growth. Uh, they've got a massive, uh, amount of debt that needs to be repaid. 
And you can repay it in three different ways. Number one, you can increase taxes, and we know that that would kill growth. Uh, number two, you could, and this is kind of a variant of number one, uh, you could print money to pay it off. And that's bad. That's inflationary and, again, kills the economy. Number three, you can grow. So when you grow, the tax revenue uh, increases. So we need to have uh, a focus on economic growth. This new technology in terms of decentralized finance is ideally suited to reduce the frictions induced by uh, the middle people. And I think that um, most in the U.S. just don't realize how much uh, is taken away by uh, these oligopolies. And if we put that back into the hands of businesses and, and individuals, uh, we have a real shot of increasing growth, not to, oh, well, maybe we can go from two to 3% or one and a half to two and a half. No, no, no. We have a shot of going from where we are today to five or 6% real GDP growth. But all of these interests in the middle, um, these thick middle layers, making it very difficult. Plus, you've got the bureaucracy of these different regulatory agencies acting on their own behalf. So it's a fight between the SEC and the CFTC and the FTC and the OCC and the IRS and, and other departments. We need to rationalize uh, this regulation, or we're going to be left behind. And no, it's not too late. Uh, there is time to do it. And I was very energized. Um, so I was uh, co-running a, a, a co-running a conference um, uh, in Washington, D.C. Uh, last week. And and one of the uh, one of the panels uh, we put together had Senators uh, Gillibrand and, and Loomis. And uh, they talked, and I was impressed. Uh, they had a very good grip of the big picture. And the big picture was that the U.S. was losing their competitive advantage to other countries, given the chaos that's going on right now, and there needs to be uh, some guidance. This was bipartisan, and these issues are bipartisan. So the, the idea of efficient allocation of capital the idea uh, that uh, if you've got an innovative um, proposal, it doesn't matter who you are, that it should have a fair shot. Uh, reducing the power of the oligopoly. These are all bipartisan issues. And crypto provides a rare opportunity in our government for um, both sides of the aisle to get together uh, to do something. So actually... Um, Again, I was encouraged uh, by that, uh, but I'm certainly discouraged by the current actions uh, of the SEC, and they were strongly criticized uh, at this conference. Yeah, I'm not uh, spares no spares no words. I, I agree. I was. I mean, Dave and I have been speaking for a long time. So you know, last summer when the Gillibrand Lummis Lummis Gillibrand bill was proposed, I think everybody was encouraged. I would say I've been discouraged by the lack of talk about it since last summer uh, and how it's sort of fallen by the wayside, clearly not as a priority. And as for the SEC, uh, you know, we're, we're looking at 2026 for Gensler's reign to end. So either he needs to pass on right. from his job or pass on from this world. 
uh, for yeah. us to see so, anything, uh, I think, in the next three years, unfortunately. Yeah. So the news is uh, it was announced at the conference that uh, the the bill, uh, the Lummis Gillibrand bill, will be reintroduced uh, in April. And uh, it will be leaner, and I like lean. Sure. Um, but also uh, some of the weak parts were um, were fortified. So they, they say it's leaner but stronger. Uh, I'm not sure what the strong actually means. We'll have to wait and see. But this is not dead. Uh, so this is a bipartisan effort. And let's see. It's weird to me that uh, Europe is so far ahead of the U.S. on a regulatory framework with their uh, MECA uh, framework. And and I think it's uh, purely a, a result of Europe seeing Europe and the UK uh, seeing an opportunity. They've been dominated by the dollar for so long. This is a great opportunity for them uh, to be in the game early and to have a friendly environment. And they also want to jumpstart uh, their growth. Yeah, I, I it, it, you know, <laughs> The fact is, is it should be bipartisan. It, it makes no sense. We already talked about it before, why an inclusive financial technology would be, you know, the province of the Republicans. I mean, you know, it, it doesn't even make sense. I mean, yeah, anti-regulation and deregulation, that tends to be more Republican, I guess. But the fact is that it, it is it is unconscionable what's being done out of the SEC. And the reason why we're so screwed is because we're the only country that actually has two regulators with two totally different political bases. Uh, let me explain. The Agriculture Committee is where the CFTC sits and the Finance Committee is where the SEC sits. They are huge sources of donations for both and no congressman or senator is going to support combining them if, that, if they're on the wrong side. So the fact is, is, you know, you compare that to the FCA in, in the UK, well, the FCA does, it's, it's, it's monolithic, it's very simple. So this food fight over jurisdiction is a big problem. And every single action the SEC has taken has been about jurisdiction, you know, like the suing Do Kwan. Why they sue Do Kwan? They're not going to find him. He's going to end up if they, if if they could if we could get him, we'd have to extradite him to South Korea, who I think has precedence over him in terms of what they're looking for. So why did they spend untold fat tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars of lawyers and staff time to sue Do Kwan? Easy because it got them to be able to put in print that Luna and and UST were securities. Yeah, it's so creating legal precedent. That's it. That's their sole goal for it. So you talk about CFTC and, and SEC. Uh, in the payment space, it's worse because it's a state uh, responsibility right now. So if you want to do payments in the U.S., you need to get approval of 50 regulatory agencies, yeah. five zero. And, and who can do that? So it's only the very largest firms, uh, you know, PayPal, Facebook, um, Meta, uh, it's just enormously expensive. There, that should definitely be uh, something that is a federal responsibility. Uh, I think we all agree there. And unfortunately, we're up against time because I could listen to the two of you gentlemen chat for the next uh, seven to nine hours. Uh, happily. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Dave, uh, of course, uh, you know, I see you every week. So I'm yeah, sure I'm assuming sure. other than vacation, we'll be seeing you back. But Cam, you are uh, absolutely welcome back anytime. It's truly a, an honor and a pleasure always to listen to you. 
And nice to hear sort of the pragmatic approach to what is likely to happen and also the importance of crypto, because usually we're all just sort of screaming uh, obnoxiously and the message doesn't get across. So I'm glad that we have uh, people that can actually go to Washington and speak about this in a, in a rational manner and, and understand it. I think it's uh, wildly important. And Dave, I included your uh, video uh, about the market manipulation in my newsletter this morning, by the way, just so you know, I liked it so much so everybody can Thanks. see that there. Uh, so for both of you, oh, just a little housekeeping for everybody. Tomorrow we will not be here. We're doing Twitter spaces at 11 a.m. Eastern Standard Time instead of YouTube. But uh, the rest of the week will still be intact on on uh, YouTube. So, guys, tune in tomorrow. Uh, spaces, we're going to be talking about exactly these topics. The uh, I think I believe it's called the Crypto Empire Strikes Back uh, <laughs> because we're seeing Grayscale's court case opens tomorrow. Uh, I have John Deaton, who is the lawyer suing the SEC on behalf of Ripple, who will also be joining. We're going to talk about how the industry is finally standing up and pushing back against this regulatory uh, nightmare. So everyone, please join tomorrow on Twitter Space at 11. Cam, Dave, thank you once again. Uh, truly, truly enlightening. Thank you. Thanks, Brad.